Well, it certainly is good to have Becky here this morning, and sorry that Millie's not feeling well. I hope she feels better soon. Um, we always love to have uh, some of our missionaries here, uh, whichever ones it may be, and we're just thankful for the work that they're doing, thankful we get to partner with them in that, and uh, hope that you pray for them and think about them and uh, send them a note occasionally and let, your, let them know that you're doing that or an email or something like that. Um, it's, it's good to stay in contact with them and and keep up with them. So open your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 2. Um, here's some pages turning. You're already headed there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I think there are Bibles in front of you on the pew, and you're welcome to take that uh, and, uh, and keep it if you don't have one this morning. That would be fine. I always feel like um, in some of these introductions, I feel like I'm confessing to you these TV shows that Bethany and I used to watch at various times, and I'm going to do that again this morning. When we were first married, we used to watch this this show um, where the the stars of the show were two fashion consultants. Now, some of you, your opinion of us has just gone down several notches, and that's fair. I get it. I understand. Um, but we used to watch this show, and the goal of the show was to help people dress better. And um, the way they went about it was very funny, and that's what kind of drew me into watching this. Uh, people would nominate a friend or a family member for the show who they thought dressed terribly. And so maybe you would think, well, my, my sister or my brother is a very poor dresser. And they don't have good style, and they need help in this area. And so they would nominate this loved one, right, for, for the show, and they would videotape them without the person knowing it in their horrible fashion, whatever it may be. And they would send the video in to the show, and these two fashion consultants would look at the video, they'd watch it, and they would have their funny comments and critique of the person. And then they would arrange for them to, these two consultants would show up at some event, some family get-together or party or whatever, and they would show up and they would surprise the, the poor dresser. And they would show up and they would say, congratulations, your friend has nominated you as a person who dresses terribly. (laughs) And so the person's all embarrassed and they would say, but if you will submit to our help and our critique and you'll bring your entire wardrobe with you and throw it away, we will give you a whole bunch of money and we'll help you and you can buy a brand new wardrobe uh, to wear. And so the whole thing was humorous and and funny, and uh, but it was interesting. Nearly every person that would submit to this, and most of the time, at least initially, it was involuntary. They sort of got thrust into this situation. But most of the the people that would that would end up in this situation were told one of the major things they needed to do was to buy clothes that fit better. Either they wore clothes that were too loose, or Unfortunately, they would wear clothes that were too tight for their body type. And so they, these consultants would constantly be saying, you need to find clothes that fit your body correctly. And no matter what body type you have, you can actually look better if you will find clothes that fit correctly. It's amazing how much of a difference that concept made for people and how that was helpful for people. And if you think about it, there are a lot of things in life where we're really the goal is to find something that's appropriate or is suitable or is fitting for a particular circumstance, whether it's the clothes that you buy, whether it's the topic of conversation that you're going to have at 
Thanksgiving dinner with extended family? What is an appropriate topic of conversation to have in that moment? What are you going to wear to a job interview? Are you too casual, too dressed up, whatever it may be? A lot of the time we're looking for something that will be fitting or will be appropriate for uh, a particular situation. Now, if you're in Titus, the reason I'm talking about something being fitting or appropriate is because that's exactly the really the major idea that Paul is getting at in the book of Titus. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. We looked at this last time, but this is Paul's driving desire for Titus in his ministry on the island of Crete. Verse 1 of chapter 2, but as for you, teach what accords or is fitting or is suitable. That's the word that he's using there. Teach what is fitting with sound doctrine. What Titus needs to do is he needs to teach the people there is a way of living in the world. There's a way of being. There's a lifestyle that fits with the doctrine that you say you believe. It flows from the doctrine that you have. Now, if the Queen of England were coming to town and you were responsible to arrange her accommodations, I'm guessing you would not put her in a Motel 6. And the reason, nothing against Motel 6, but it's not an appropriate place for the Queen of England to stay. Her office, her experience is far above a Motel 6. It doesn't fit with who she is or with the responsibilities or the office that she holds. It's not appropriate. And that's true with our attitudes, our actions, and our character, who we are. There are certain ways of living that are appropriate, that are fitting for the doctrine we say we believe. And there are certain ways of living that aren't appropriate or fitting. And that's what we're going to look at. So last week we saw the false teachers. Look back in chapter 1 in verse 16. They professed good things. They professed to know God, but their lifestyles did not match that profession. It wasn't fitting with what they said they wanted and with what they said they knew. They professed to know God, verse 16, but they deny him by their works. And the answer to that hypocrisy is what Paul tells Titus to do in chapter 2, verse 1. Teach what is fitting for sound doctrine. Now, I keep talking in this series about sound doctrine. And it's almost as if we're assuming that we all are on the same page and we know what constitutes sound doctrine. And I want to make that explicit this morning before we get to the main part of the sermon and the, the text here. What are we talking about? What is Paul talking about when he keeps saying this? Sound doctrine. Teach what is fitting for sound doctrine. What's he talking about there? Well, there are several times in the book of Titus that he makes this very clear for us. And I want to read these passages to you. One we've already looked at, and it's the introduction to the book. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verses 1 to 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords, which is fitting, with godliness, and here's the doctrine, here's the hope, here's what you believe, in hope of eternal life. It's eternal life. That's, that's what the doctrine is. It's all the, the truths that bring us to the point where we have and embrace eternal life. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching 
with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It's the reality of eternal life, and it's the way God has worked in history to bring about the reality of eternal life. Now look down at chapter 2, verse 11. And we'll talk about this text next week. This is the support for everything we're going to talk about today for the lifestyle. But look at this. Here's the doctrine for the grace of God. The doctrine is all about God's grace. There are certain ways of living that flow from your encounter with God's grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What's the doctrine? It's the reality of what God's grace has done in the past And it's the reality of what we're anticipating and what we're waiting for in the future that is coming because of God's grace. One more passage, Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. Here's the sound doctrine. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But here's the good news. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, it's sound, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the sound doctrine. So what is it? How could we summarize the sound doctrine that plays itself out in daily life? It's the gospel. It's all these truths about eternal life, about God's work through Jesus Christ, about his grace coming to us, about how it's not our works that have brought us righteousness, but it's through him. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the gospel. It's the good news of God, the father sending his son to save lost and broken sinners. That is the sound doctrine. And it's everything that fits with that. Now, that message, that message is good news to us, and that message makes certain demands on our lives. When you believe that message, if you genuinely embrace it, it will change the way you live. It forms us into people who reflect a heavenly mindset and a heavenly culture and not an earthly one, like the false teachers. And that's Paul's driving emphasis in this book. It's this title on the wall here, that doctrine works. It works itself out in our lives. And so today in our passage, what we have is we've got Paul describing the lifestyle that flows from the gospel. Here's what it looks like for you and I to live this out functionally with one another in the church. This is a lifestyle that fits like good clothes. It fits a gospel proclamation and it makes 
your gospel proclamation look good. (laughs) That's what happens when you put on this lifestyle here. So today, I want to ask three questions to help us put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine. Three questions, and we're going to answer each, each of these questions as we go along here, all right? A lifestyle that fits. Three questions to help us put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine. And the first one of these is, who needs this lifestyle? And the answer is, all of us. All believers need this lifestyle. None of us are exempt from this. Now, I'm not going to walk you through every detail of this passage this morning like we typically do. We're going to kind of jump around and sort of group it together by these questions and by themes. But eventually we're going to cover the whole thing. I just want to organize it a little bit differently. Uh, We're going to study the whole passage as a unit, verses 1 through 10. So kind of think of it that way. But as you're looking at this text, there are several different groups. There are five groups of people that Paul directly addresses here. And if you've ever read through this before, you probably know what I'm talking about. But we'll go through these groups one by one. And I just want to highlight maybe one or two characteristics, implications of the gospel for these different groups of people. All right? Look at verse 2. So in verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now he starts to spell that out for us. And here's the first group that he addresses. Older men. Older men are to be sober-minded. Dignified, self-controlled, sound, healthy, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, he starts here with older men. And I don't want to, some of you are like, well, is this me? Is this not, am I an older man? And I don't necessarily want to draw a hard and fast line here. But it does seem to indicate that this is Paul talking about men who are generally over 50 in that culture. All right, so there you go. If you're over 50, you're an old man. That's what I'm saying this morning, all right? That's what Paul's saying. These are guys who have quite a bit of life experience, right? They've been through it. They've worked. They've had a family. These guys have been through life. They have life experience. And for these guys, the gospel has specific implications for them at their stage in life. There are certain character qualities that older men should possess. They should be sober-minded and dignified. It doesn't mean they never laugh at anything, but it means they should be clear in their thinking and in the way they apply the gospel. They should be dignified. People should respect an older man because of their self-control and because of the way they live their life. It should come naturally that younger people look to a man who's over 50 years old and respect him because of how he handles himself and how he carries himself. Now, let's be honest here. Let's, let's be straight up this morning, all right? What are the cultural stereotypes of older men? They're grumpy and they're dirty. It is. Those are the cultural stereotypes of older men. And the gospel has implications where if you claim to believe the gospel, you should not be living that way. That should not be how people perceive you as a grumpy or dirty old man. If you've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and he has been at work in your life, then you should be sober-minded and dignified. And your manner of life should garner respect from those who know you because of your clear thinking and your self-control. It's interesting here, too. Look what he says, that they should be sound or healthy in 
three different areas, faith, love, and patience, or hope, I think we could say for the last one. Faith, love, and hope. Those are the the centerpieces. Those are the main character qualities that the New Testament wants believers to grow in. And these men, older men, should be examples and models of faith and love and hope. Now, guys, it's no accident that Paul begins with older men here. I'm going to really put the burden on you this morning. They need to be healthy in faith and love and patience and hope. Because this church will not be a healthy church without men who have been in the faith for a while, who are maturing, who are mature, who are sound, who are dignified, and who represent the gospel well, who are modeling this sort of lifestyle. Paul says that this sort of walk is fitting for someone who knows the gospel, who says they know God. And how blessed would this church be? How blessed is this church to have many men who are stable and wise and spiritually healthy and who have been walking with Jesus for years and who patiently love others and live with self-control. That is the goal. That's the ambition. And let me just encourage you guys. If you're looking at this and you're 50, 60, 70, and you're thinking, eh, that's not me. There's still time to grow in this. The spirit works and changes us. But Paul doesn't only speak to older men here. Look at verse 3. Older women. Now, I'm definitely not putting an age on this one. (laughs) Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, that first overall quality here is that older women are to be reverent in behavior. That means holy in their behavior. The idea here is they are to walk closely with Christ and for that walk to change the way they live, their behavior. They're to live as if they really do walk with Christ because that is reality in their lives. It impacts their behavior. And, of course, that means... Two areas. They're not to be enslaved to slander or to alcohol. They're not to be given to those things to the point where they overwhelm them. And let's just highlight one of those this morning. Gossip, slander. Gossip tears apart the body of Christ. It seems harmless. It seems mostly fun. It seems like it's not going to change. It's only going to be between me and this other person. We're the only two that are talking about this. I would say there's nothing more damaging to the unity of the body than gossip and slander that happens behind the scenes. When you slander someone, you may think it's just between you and that person, but what has happened is it has become harder for that person to love whoever it is you're talking about. It's become harder for that individual to see that other person as a a person made in the image of God and a person loved by Christ because you have just trashed them verbally and made it more difficult for them, for that that woman to love that other person. Now, our church needs older women who shut this sort of talk down. They stop it. They head it off at the pass. And how do you stop it? Well, when someone gossips to you, when they slander to you, you respond by saying, hey, listen, if you're concerned about what's going on, I will go with you to talk to this person that you're talking about. And I guarantee you it won't happen again, and they won't come back to you. If you're this concerned about it, let's pray for them, and let's go express our concern, and let's try to help them if it's really that bad in their life right now. 
rather than giving themselves to slander and gossip, look what older women are to do at the end of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. They're not to convey slander. They're actually to build people up with that which is good and which is edifying. That's how they live. Now, there's a very clear connection here in verse 3 and 4 between the older women and the next group who Paul addresses. And they do have an impact, the older women on the younger women, but we will talk about that in a few minutes. That's going to be another section. So now let's jump ahead to verse 4, and let's talk specifically about what Paul says the implications of the gospel are for younger women. Look at verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, the younger women here, most of the qualities that Paul describes for younger women have to do with their relationships with their husbands and with their children. He's talking about their home life here. And for most young women, particularly in this culture, in Roman culture on the island of Crete, most of them would have had their home as their primary place of work. I mean, that's where they would have been. And so Paul is saying, look, you're there. This is where you're you're investing your time. So the gospel should have an impact on the way you live with your husband and with your children. Now, Paul's not saying here, as some have said, that women can never have jobs outside the home. That's not what he's describing here. And scripture certainly doesn't bear that out. I mean, read Proverbs 31. I mean, that woman certainly had quite an array of business endeavors that she was involved in. But the Bible does speak about a young woman with small children having a significant investment of time and energy in the management of the home and the raising of children. I mean, that's a natural part of life for a young woman. In our culture, that sort of devotion And honoring of a woman who gives herself to marriage and the raising of children is looked down on. But biblically speaking, it's a place of significant investment and a blessing. It's a good thing to be able to do that. Now let me just say a quick word here about another one of these characteristics that's mentioned in verse 5. He says, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now, I want to to talk about that for just a minute. We can't cover everything about that, being submissive to their husbands, but I do want to touch on it because I think it's important for us to be clear and understood in what Paul's saying here. I think it's been poorly taught, poorly modeled by many churches, and it certainly has been maligned by the surrounding culture. Now, this doesn't mean in any way that wives or women play an inferior role in God's plans. That's not what he's talking about here. You have to keep this passage within the broader context of the Bible. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. You don't have to turn there. But in that passage, God gives what's the creation mandate. Men and women are to multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion over the earth. That's not just the men. It's not just the women. Together, they accomplish that creation mandate, both the multiplying and the taking dominion. Both are responsible for that on an equal footing. They're both assigned by God to fill the earth and to reflect God's glory, and they need to do that together because they have to do that together to make that happen. 
The biblical command here for wives to submit to their husbands means to live in line with the structure that God has put in place. And that structure is in the home. This is not talking about every woman submitting to every man or you know, you know, the work relationship or whatever. A woman should never be a boss. It's none of those things. This is talking about the structured relationship between husband and wife in the home. And what this means is men are given the responsibility to lead in the home. The burden falls on us, guys. It's our responsibility to lead. They, we are to set the course spiritually and take the overall concern and direction and for influence spiritually. And wives are to support and enable that direction as they, as they can. It's not some sort of patriarchal dominance or subservience. And unfortunately, the church has gotten this wrong so much of the time and played this out so poorly. This sort of relationship, and in fact, this word is used, submission, to describe other relationships in Scripture. It talks about the relationships between church members and elders. Well, elders aren't better than than church members. It's the position and the way God has ordered things to accomplish a particular goal. In fact, God the Son follows the lead of God the Father. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that relationship. Now, God the Son is not less than the Father. They're equal, but there's an ordering of functioning or responsibilities to accomplish a particular goal. And that's what he's talking about here. And Paul is telling the younger women that it's fitting or appropriate to sound doctrine for them to live out these relationships with their husbands and with their children. All right? So, the next group, young men, verse 6. I think it's interesting here, Paul only has one command, and I think it's probably because young men are not very good at following commands for the most part, and so he makes it as simple as possible for them. And he says in verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If there's one character quality that is very normal of younger men, it is that they are impulsive and brash and tend to do things without thinking about them or without self-control. And so Paul says here, look, younger men are to cultivate, because of the gospel, because of the work of Christ, they are to cultivate the quality of self-control. They're to live with that quality. Now in verses 7 and 8, he turns to Titus and says, as you're working with all of these groups of people, there are certain things that you need to do. Look at verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We'll kind of come back to that in a minute, but I wanted you to see that. And then lastly here, our last group, I'm going to call it employees, and this is in verse 9. Look there. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, without going into a huge explanation of this word bond servants here, this is, is a work relationship in this culture. During this time period, a really high percentage of people were in this sort of relationship. They were bond servants or indentured servants. And so what happened in this sort of relationship, there's, there's really not anything like it currently in our culture. But in this sort of relationship, you entered into the service of another person and were owned by that other person as the master. Now, 
This is not even close to the race-based slavery which was common in America. This is not the same thing. That was dehumanizing. It was based on skin color. This sort of relationship here could be entered into to pay off debts. And a lot of times, bond servants would buy themselves out of the relationship, the work relationship with their master. They bought their own freedom. So it's not the same thing. But Paul says for these people, these employees, these bond servants, the gospel has an impact on the way they live out their work relationship. They're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. They're not to steal. They're to show all good faith. They're to live out the implications of the gospel in their daily lives, in their work. He describes that in verses 9 and 10. Now, the bottom line, what I hope you pick up from all of this is that the gospel has implications for all of these sort of relationships. And the gospel impacts everything from work relationships to family relationships to the way we live with one another. It changes the way we live. So who is responsible? Who needs this lifestyle? We all do. All of us fit somewhere into one of these categories. So the next question comes naturally, how do we develop this sort of lifestyle? And this will go much quicker than that first point, that first question. How do we develop this lifestyle? And I'm going to say the main emphasis here is discipleship. As Paul is describing these groups here, he describes the ways in which they relate to one another. Older men to younger men, older women to younger women. These groups relate to one another. And the way he describes that is discipleship. To grow in these character qualities, we need one another. We don't do this on our own. We are to specifically think about how we help one another in these areas. What are the implications of the gospel for my stage of life, for my lifestyle? And let's help one another grow in those ways. I mean, look at the older women and younger women. Verse 3. And four, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. The older women are not supposed to gather together as older women and try not to gossip and drink too much alcohol. (laughs) That's not all that they're supposed to do. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to turn their gaze outward to the younger women and they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to do all these things to live where God has put them, to live out the implications of the gospel. That's what they're to do. Notice also, verse 6, Titus is to urge the younger men. And I think by implication, the older men are responsible to do this as well. Verse 6, likewise, urge or exhort the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You model something, you model these good works so that others will see it and they will imitate the pattern that you have set. So how do we grow in these areas? We teach, we train, we exhort, and we model. Teach, train, exhort, and model. Those are the ways that Paul says this is how these character qualities are passed on to others within the church body. This is discipleship. Look who the burden falls on for discipleship. Who is it? It's the older. It's not the younger. 
it, it falls on the older men and the older women, and certainly Titus as a church leader, the elders, it would fall on them as well. But Paul starts here with the older men and the older women and then goes to the younger. The older men and women are to actively develop younger people and see them make progress in these areas. That's how the church is to work, to function. Back in Virginia at the, the church we were at previously, there was a sweet older man in his 80s uh, who had been serving for a very long time in that church. Over 50 years, he'd been on, in all sorts of leadership positions, and he taught Sunday school and was still teaching the, they called it the senior saints class, over 50, you know. And he was still teaching and doing a great job of that, and uh, we got together with him and, and were friends with him, and I'd known him when I was a, a small child anyway. But he was teaching that class well into his 80s and um, started to have some different health issues. And so he knew he was going to have to give up teaching, but he was still pursuing other ministry things as his health would allow him to do that, visiting people and all that. But in his last year or two of teaching the senior saints, he really focused on the topic of leaving a legacy. It was significant to him because he had invested so much time and effort of gospel ministry in that church, and he loved the church, and he wanted the older folks to have burnt into their minds that you are leaving a legacy, whether you intend to or not, whether you're thinking about it or not. Your actions, your character, the way you live your life is leaving a legacy for the younger people in this church. You are shaping the kind of church that this will be and the younger people who are going to be leading this church in a few years or already are in some ways. And so they needed to think very carefully about the legacy that they were leaving. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Titus 2. Legacy. For you older folks, if you are over 50, let's just say, what are you doing to intentionally, actively help the younger generation walk in self-control, love their families, and live out good works. What's that look like? Discipleship is the lifeblood of the church. I mean, this is how we grow. It's through relationships with one another. So why do we go to all this effort? Why do we do this? That brings us to our third question. Why must lifestyle match sound doctrine? Ultimately, the answer is because it glorifies God. It brings him honor. But within that broader reason, there are two specific reasons that Paul gives as to why your lifestyle much, must match sound doctrine. Look at verse 1. We'll go back there. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why must lifestyle match sound doctrine? Because it's right and true. Paul is not just making up the implications of the gospel for life. He's saying these things, these qualities naturally flow from the grace of God, the redemption of Jesus Christ for us. People should live out these qualities because they come naturally. The implications are natural. When you rightly grasp the gospel, this is how life will be lived. This is what it will look like. For you to live as an older man, an older woman, a younger woman, and a younger man. You will be sober. You will be self-controlled. You will seek to model good works and influence others to do good works. In this section, Paul is really telling Titus to teach these things 
in opposition to the way that the false teachers were living. Look back at verse 14. He tells them not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands. These are extra biblical commands of people who turn away from the truth. They taught these extra commandments of people. And Paul is saying here, look, I want you to teach what actually is right and which that which flows from the gospel. This is the way they need to live. You need to engage in that sort of ministry here. And that's verses 1 to 10. Beyond it being right and good, there's another reason for your lifestyle to match sound doctrine. And Paul hits this reason three times in this passage. And I hope you picked it up as we look through it. Look at verse 5. They're all phrased differently, but they're basically the same motivation. Verse 5. For the younger women, they're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why are they to live that way? That the word of God may not be reviled. Look at verse 8. Titus is to teach the younger men with sound speech that cannot be condemned. Here's why. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, about the way we're living. And then look at verse 10. Bond servants are to not pilfer, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Your conduct will influence those around you, the culture around you. Let's be honest this morning. The way we live has a direct impact on the perception of those outside the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the only thing, but it is a thing. People do look at the way Christians live and they evaluate the worthiness of the gospel based on how we live our lives. That's what Paul is saying here. And sometimes they don't quite get it right and they're offended by the gospel, but many times they're offended by the way we're living as believers. We're claiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, and we are not acting with grace at all. We're not living a lifestyle filled with grace. We're not self-controlled. You may have the greatest coffee in the world, but if you serve it in a dirty paper cup, people will not want to drink it. That's the way this works. You and I are vessels. We're vessels of God, and he is very graciously, 2 Corinthians says, allowed these broken vessels to transmit the glory of the gospel. That's an amazing gift that God has given to us. And our lives, the way we live, will bear witness to the glory of that gospel or not. How? How does it do it? Well, it's not by having lots of money and power and status. Sometimes we're enamored with celebrity Christians, people who genuinely believe and they're well-known in the broader culture. But that's not what ultimately makes the gospel good news or makes the gospel shine. It's genuine, ordinary Christians who have believed the gospel and the implications are it has created people, whole churches of people who live in their communities, who are joyful, who are easy to get along with, who are filled with peace, who are humble, who are kind, who are just and pursue justice in the broader culture who are loving, when the gospel creates that sort of people, and if there are whole churches filled with those types of people, then our character makes the gospel attractive 
to people. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. When we live in such a way that we're showing the good news of the gospel, then the word of God will not be reviled. Our opponents will have nothing evil to say about us. And our lifestyles, verse 10, will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When you watch an athlete pursue an Olympic gold medal, they've put so much time and energy into pursuing that gold medal. Their life has been devoted to that. And when you see that energy and passion and pursuit and the way they structure life, it makes you say, wow, that gold medal must be worth it. That must be a fantastic thing to receive and to have won. Must be valuable. The work adorns the prize won. So let's live in such a way, not through our own efforts, but through the work of God in us, through the gospel. That's where it starts. It starts with us believing and knowing the gospel. And then as that transforms us, let's live in such a way that our lives adorn the good news of what Christ has done for us. And it makes the gospel genuinely look like good news. That's what Paul tells Titus needs to happen, and that's what needs to happen for us as well. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly live these things out on our own. What we need is consistent instruction, modeling, exhortation, and discipleship. We need to know the gospel well. We need to understand the grace that you have given us. And we'll even look at that next week. Help us to be awed by your kindness and your goodness in the gospel. Let us be so awed by that that it transforms the way we think, the way we feel, the way we live. And help us to become people who are attractive to those outside. Help the gospel to fit and our lifestyle to fit what we proclaim, to adorn the doctrine that we say we believe. Work in us even now. Transform us by your word. Help us to respond appropriately to what we've learned this morning. And we thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.